Hi, I'm Anthony. And I'm Thane, and you're listening to Runners on Trail, the trail running podcast by mid-pack runners. For mid-pack runners. And in this episode, with Thane just about to do the spine race, we thought we'd look at training again, and how his training for spine has differed from our training in the past. This is Runners on Trail, episode... 13. Unlucky for some, hopefully not. So welcome to Runners on Trail. Um, this time we are going to talk about training and what we're going to talk about is all the different aspects of training that perhaps we haven't touched on in our previous training episode. And it's really born out of things I'm having to consider for spine, things I considered for spine fusion and the longer races and brought us to discuss quite a bit about the differences between the areas you focus on, on things like short races like where we've done green man ultra recently and transvolcania the kind of longer distances like we did with thames path 100 cotswolds way century comparing to the more expedition-y like multi-day type events yeah because it's definitely very different and looking at your kit sat next to us for spine you know that's really obvious when we look at transvolcania and what we carried for that and our race vests and the decisions we had to make on kit the, the only thing we really had to decide was were we going to use poles or weren't we going to use poles other than that there was a four item mandatory kit list that's all we carried basically yeah. uh, apart from an extra top that we decided we were going to carry but that was it you know looking at this rucksack next to us 25 litre rucksack you've got you know there's clearly a lot of thought gone into what you're wear, uh, carrying and that's clearly much more important in a longer expeditionary style race than it is in a shorter race yeah so what we're going to do is we're going to work through different things that come into the races i think we'll do it from a perspective of looking at the things that i'm having to consider for spine and then reflecting back on how we've thought about those and the the differences in the other types of races we've done yeah and we're going to make it specific to those races that we've done because otherwise every race is different in trail running that's what makes it so great but so you can't generalize completely about any sort of distance or any type of race so we'll refer it back to Transwakania, green man cotswold century and thames part 100 i think yes okay come on then so let's consider the first obvious thing fitness yep things like Transvolcania, green man some of the other races that we've done um trail marathons fitness is the predominant factor yep the people who are going to win out are those who are stronger fitter at running and running speed in short in the shorter term yes yeah uh, and therefore what should your focus be for training it should be running it should be strength training um it should be trying to get your cardiovascular as good as it can be yep and a lot of it is about daily mileage or weekly mileage yep and mixing it up and we've talked about that previously you've got the longer slower runs and then some speed work as well which really improves that cardiovascular stuff and the thing that we found for Transvolcania and we thought was really important, of course, was hill work. Lots and lots and lots and lots of hill work. Yeah. So I guess there's always that blend of general training for fitness and specific training for fitness, depending on the event. So yeah. Transvolcania, there was a lot of climbing. So you had to build on the general fitness, but also the specifics of the race. Yeah. Hence all the hill work on Sunday mornings up and down Bridge Valley Road. Absolutely. But what we didn't have to think about too much was kit. It was mostly fitness, running hard. You know, make sure you've got the right shoes and clothing on. But other than that, that was what really mattered. And the only equipment decision we had was... Poles or no poles. Mm-hmm. It's a, The answer's poles, by the way. If you're ever <laughs> going to do Transvolcania, the answer is poles. But on Green Man... No, the answer is not poles. Not Correct. poles. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So yes. when it comes to Transvolcania, the overall percentage of time when you're looking at your preparation for the event, 90% at least, 90% plus, will be on fitness training. Yes. You know, there might be 10% where you're looking at logistics, where the aid stations are going to be, yeah. thinking about what you might eat at each aid station to get you through the day. But other than that, yes, it's all going to be on fitness and training in the type of terrain or trying to run the hills and stuff like that. And the same is true of Green Man, maybe in terms of fitness, um, but we'll get on some other elements of Green Man that will yeah. possibly, possibly reduce the amount of time you spent on fitness training because there are other elements to Green Man different than Transalcania. Yeah. I say on on Transvolcania, there's also a little bit on technique, like downhill running Correct. technique and yeah. stuff. 
but absolutely 80-90% of their focus was on being as fit as you possibly could be. Yeah, and that hill work when you're training hopefully will provide you with that technique. Yeah. So if we look at then Green Man and the difference between that and Transalcania, the one key difference between Transalcania and Green Man is Transalcania is very well route marked. Yeah. I don't really don't think you could get lost on Transalcania. You'd have to try pretty hard You'd to have fall to try off a ridge. Very hard. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> apart from having a massive accident, one, because of the number of people running it, mm. but two, just how well marked it is, yeah. you'd struggle to get lost. On Green Man, I think you could get lost in the first absolutely five kilometres and never find your way back. And very be, easy. be lost in the Somerset countryside forever. Yeah, there's no single trail for that, is it? It is all on paths, I think. Sort of. Well, it's on public footpaths but of course some lots of public footpaths just cross fields you don't yes. you can't see them necessarily in the field yeah. very easily and it, although it is a community forest path it's actually made up of lots of different paths brought around in a circle so so it's very easy to just carry on on one path and miss the turning for the one you should have been on correct so your preparedness can work in one of two ways can't it it's either being brilliant at navigation mm-hmm. loading up a really good gpx file to a a GPS and just following that, or route recce. And there's a lot of people that do route recce's for Green Man because they have the recce's before the race, and typically people put them on Facebook. And we're going to run this section, we're going to run this section, etc. And that's because the navit is so difficult for Green Man. Yeah. And that's why I ran with a pacer this year who knew the route at least yeah. to start with, and then for the rest of the race ran it with people who knew where they were running. And in our preparation, we did the section through Bradley Stoke. Uh, I know it was close to where. I live yeah. but nonetheless we knew it was a tricky section because they built a house, massive housing estate over where the path used to be and now yeah. it, it goes very fine detail through that town and if, if we take that then beyond Green Man to Thames Path 100 and Cotswold West Century Thames Path 100 again very well route marked really mm. um, yeah I mean it was I, I didn't get lost I didn't use a map no so I know people did get lost I'm not quite sure how but they did uh Cotswold West Century, not route marked at all. It was on a, again, you were following a path. Yeah, there was some way markings. There was a couple of areas where they'd highlighted where people can go wrong. There's a couple of areas where you could take two different routes, basically. And when you join back up, you could end up going the wrong way. But you're right. Essentially, there's not much navigation you have to do for Cotswolds Way Century. But you have to be aware. You do have to be reasonably confident of just looking at a map and knowing where you're going to make sure you've not gone horribly wrong. And then the big bit for spine, of course, is... That there is quite a lot of nav involved. Yes, there are some areas of the route which are very well waymarked. And in fact, there are um, stones laid in certain areas to protect the peat bogs. Uh, and that you typically get quite a lot of that at the at the beginning and a little bit at the end as well on the Cheviots. But quite a lot of sections, there isn't that much waymarking. Uh, and some of the photographs posted on uh, Instagram and stuff, it's, it's hardly any <laughs> trail you can see at all. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing here is how much navigation ability do you need to have given modern gps's well i think it gives you a lot of confidence if you've got like two ways of navigating there's movies of spine for example where people have pulled out um because they've had gps failures and they, they're not confident enough to navigate it without a gps now the rules do require you to have a working gps but my point being that mentally if you know you don't actually need the gps device to be able to keep safe and know where you're going and be confident of your ability to do that it's all mental isn't it i mean the longer distances are the balance goes from physical to to mental and and when you've got confidence in yourself that you've got two ways of navigating that can mean a lot well we've talked about that before that the if you take uncertainty any area of uncertainty you can take out of your race mm-hmm. is always going to be good. You don't want to be stood on the start line. Have trepidation about the things that you should have trepidation about. And the more things that you, you've got trepidation about, the worse your race will be. Because the more things you're worrying about and trying to focus on. If you do something and you don't have to worry about it, mm. then you focus on the things that are important. I guess the question is, how much navigation training have you done for spine? Because we did nothing for the others. Yeah. So how much have you done for spine? So I'm quite lucky because I've got a navigation background. I've done you know decade of it in doing orienteering. So my navigation's pretty good. Um, but there are, for example, training courses that are put on 
for navigation for spine specifically to help people there are a lot of people that do recce of the route so that they they're more familiar with it so there are actually ways in which people if that's an area of weakness can train specifically for that race to do it but but again even navigation is a whole range of skills you don't necessarily have to be a kind of an orienteer as it were but being able to locate yourself on a map and be able to know how to go with a compass from a to b can provide a lot of you know a lot of safety and benefit and then obviously there's a whole range of skills you can do over and above that to help your navigation yeah and so what percentage is difficult because you have a background in it already but if someone didn't have a background in orienteering or map reading how much time should they dedicate do you think to doing that training for something like spine if i'd put a number on it my gut would say 20 percent. really that much maybe that's a bit high looking at all the other things you've got to worry about yeah maybe somewhere between 10 and let's say 15 then just hedging I don't your bets know. now I'm hedging my bets so if it was me going to do it yeah I think I would do probably almost zero and I'd just go for it on the GPS and have a backup GPS and, and not worry about it too much see I'm, I'm not worried about it at all well no that's not true I'm worried about it to, to like 2 or 3% because I know how bad the weather can get so I was up in the Breckens a few weekends ago and deliberately I go there when it's bad weather and I could literally see six foot. I know sometimes you say I could only see six foot. Genuinely, I could only just see six foot and I knew where I was going, but it's amazing how disorientating it can be. Yeah. So I also, for the navigation aspect, do a lot looking at Google Earth, just getting it fixed in my head. Um, And so there was that bit that you did quite a bit for for most of your races. hmm. Um, You've done that for Transvulcania and the other things that I haven't done that as much for, although we'd record Transvulcania, so it's subtly different. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't do it for Green Man, I didn't do it for Thames Path, whereas you did. Hmm. Personally, I find it really useful if you're familiar with the route and with modern tools and technologies. You can get a GPX file quite easily on the internet for every single race we've done there's been a gpx file that we've loaded up um typically sorry gpx files are like gps files that are on people's devices it's called a gpx format you can just google the name of the race and then gpx normally you'll find one you can then download it and then if you open like google earth you can literally drag the file onto the map and it will display the route yeah and you can also upload them to your gps and so you can follow a effectively a line on your gps so you know where you're going you know, interestingly, I found having done the route recce of Transylvania really useful when it came to the race. So I can understand mm. why that would be useful. I guess the point is, the longer the race, the tougher that is. Yeah. So when I was looking at Transylvania on Google Earth, for example, it's quite easy to look over the route and get it and understand it. 100 miles, that's quite a long way to cover when you're scrolling over Google Earth about where all the turns and stuff are. Yeah. But you can kind of keep it in your head. But even I, having done Spine Fusion... Still, when I look over Google Earth for the whole of Spine, I'm still thinking, oh my God, I've forgotten that bit. Where's this? Where's that? You know what I mean? There's a lot and it's very difficult to keep it all in your head. But, but it helps. It, help, yeah. it helps with the, with the planning and, the, and it helps then mentally as well, knowing that you're ticking off points as you're going along. Yeah. Okay, so the fact that you're going to now put more time and effort into doing that sort of thing in terms of route recce, practicing your navigation, everything else means that by default you're going to spend less time running training because you've only got so many hours in the week yeah where we were talking about the fitness for Transvolcania being 80-90% of the focus for spine for me fitness is probably down at 20-30% of the overall Um, maybe even slightly less if you look at the reasons why people pull out fitness isn't really on the list if you as long as you keep on it and you keep yourself honest with the times and the checkpoints and you're not worried about sleep deprivation it's not so much a problem around fitness you're right because no one's really worried about sleep deprivation are they no (laughs) if you sign up for it that's what you're signing up to so better get used to it. it it's around fatigue it's around loneliness it's around fear it's it's more focus on the feet and other aspects so the fitness aspect of it is it, I mean, it is important, but it's not the defining limit. There, there are bigger things, I think, to worry about. I think in other episodes, we've talked about the fact that understanding those other elements and making sure you do those well can be a great levelling factor. Mm. 
for the against those people who've just done fitness training and haven't thought about those other bits. So let's talk about then some of those things that you just mentioned. Yeah. And let's talk about loneliness because I think that's a, a good one to talk about and, and I've certainly felt that in races. So so in Transvulcania, there were so many people around you that I never felt lonely at all, even mm. though I wasn't running with somebody. And on the bits towards the la- latter end of the race where you're more spread out, you're running the big downhill section that you have to concentrate so hard and you can't concentrate on anything else. On Green Man, whilst I was running on my own for bits in the second half of the race, because it was so short and I knew it would be ending soon, the loneliness didn't become that much of a factor because I knew I'd be seeing people soon. Yeah. In Thames Path, when I ran on my own, the second half of the race, and I said when we did the episode, was quite lonely. Yeah. And I think that was 100 mile. And if I thought it was going to be like that for 250 miles mentally it would have become a really big issue for me I suspect and there's far more people running Thames Path 100 than when running Spine Fusion correct <laughs> like 10 times as many people yep and yet it was only a third as long yep. so the density of people is far lower in the longer races correct so I can imagine how, how do you combat that how do you train for that I think a lot of it is thinking through the loneliness and recognising the things that could go wrong a lot of my training I consider the spine as being thinking it through mental preparation thinking that it's going to be lonely um, I was lucky on spine fusion because I was around with Alan for nearly all of it yeah. now I didn't you know that wasn't my plan going in but a lot of people do team up and I think part of the reason is you want to be with somebody it's the human aspect but but I was quite prepared for the fact that I wouldn't be um, you know I think averagely 50% of people were running by themselves uh, whether by design or just because there wasn't somebody who had the same natural rhythm or pace. So from a training perspective, it's about mental preparation. I think so. And or, or is it about going out and running on your own in rubbish yeah. conditions and just being used to being on your own? So I've been to the Breckens deliberately three times on my own at night. So getting to the car park at like 10 o'clock at night in middle of Wales, no one around and just trying to man up and and get out on the hills and even though it's not you know it's not extreme by mountaineering standards even going and doing a 10 mile loop on your own around the fan dance in some not pleasant conditions does play on you mentally and, and it seems like being there on your own and being scared even those ones by myself sometimes you're a bit scared or a sheep jumps out through the cloud at the last second and you're like oh my god really frightens you it but it, it's it's that bringing up that resilience i think it's important so i'm doing what i can i could do a lot more yeah sheep resilience okay so i've learned <laughs> that now sheep resilience is important when training for events i tell you what when he was up there and and all of a sudden the sheep runs don't, behind don't you, you you're just digging yourself a it's just hole. Like, oh my god you're just digging yourself a what big was hole. that just make yourself to be more ridiculous <laughs> sheep ridiculousness okay so we talked about loneliness but I guess the bit you sort of spoke about just now about going off in the Brecon Beacons and about being scared of sheep, weakness, <laughs> um, is that bit of fear. And that's it. It's the totally, well, rational or irrational, whichever you like to think about it, running on your own in the dark probably is when it gets more scary yeah. and bad weather where you can't see anything. Is the fear of, is it fear of what's out there? Is it fear of being lost? And how have you prepared for that for spine? So I think it's the fear of being by yourself in the hills for quite a few hours at a time because uh, obviously the route does go into the hills and then come back down into the valleys and you feel safer in the valleys than you necessarily on the hilltops and potentially doing that in quite bad conditions I mean they do occasionally stop the race but only when it's reached the point that the mountain rescue teams don't feel they would be able to get to you if there was an incident so it can get pretty bad before they'd actually pull it so are you scared of the environment or are you scared of Weird monsters that might come out of the. I mean, what, what, oh no, no, no! I'm not. I'm not worried about weird monsters. The sheep was just literally just a shock factor. But it's the being in a difficult weather conditions, whilst being tired and fatigued, and maybe lots of things mounting up over a number of days, and then you just feeling you can't continue. And I think that I guess that manifests generally to me is what you say is kind of like fear or being worried or concerned about lots of things, and that might be the thing that just tips you over the edge and people do pull out because they're genuinely and it is you know it is genuinely quite scary some of the things you have to deal with I think well I guess and of course the more mentally fatigued you are and I remember the discussions we had about spine fusion where Mm. you know you were seeing cats faces and all sorts of weird stuff as you were running 
as you become more mentally fatigued, you're more susceptible, I guess, to yeah. that, that sort of fear. I think so. Because you become less rational. Yeah. And did do you think, for example, on Thames Path 100, did you think there was more fear in that from your perspective than there had been on the shorter races? Were you more concerned about that race? I think there's a thing about running in the dark, mm. that however irrational it is. And actually, to be fair, on the Thames Path 100, there was a bloke who nearly got mugged this year yeah. um, blokes called it, some guys called him over and tried to effectively mug him and he just ran away so there is a little bit on those races where there is a, a rational I guess because of that real experience yeah. of fear of running in the dark you're not scared of the dark you're just yeah. you know, scared of what might be out there or, or fearful of what might be out there and whilst I wasn't that scared at the time I think I'll be more worried now going into autumn 100 which is what I've signed up for next year yeah. running that same bit of path into Reading where it happened but I don't think I was fearful of anything else. I wasn't. I wasn't going to freeze to death. I wasn't. Nothing else. Although yeah. there were bits where I sat down in aid stations, felt cold, and all of a sudden that started to worry me mm. irrationally, really, because I knew I had extra warm kit and everything would be fine. Mm. Uh, again, it's that mental fatigue. You start to focus on little things that don't really matter. Yeah, uh, I think. I, I guess the longer the race, the more you know you're going to be probably be on your own because people get spread out a lot. Typically, the longer the race is, the more remote they are, the less waymark they are. So there's a, a lot of things just mount up collectively, which could manifest themselves in, in you pulling out because you're too frightened of all those things put together. Yeah. So moving on, something that can manifest itself in all the races that we do is injury. Yes. You know, that that, that can happen in a... A 5k race, yeah. You can twist an ankle in a 5k trail race easily, as easily in many ways as you can in a 250 mile trail race. Yeah, I guess you have more opportunities in a 250 mile race. Although conversely, you're probably taking it a little bit easier than you would be in a faster race. So you've got those sort of injuries. You're probably more likely to do in a quicker race than you are in a slower race. Maybe I think so. I, th- I think the the kind of ankle twisting or the rolling of your ankle and, and ripping tendons and things like that is more likely in Transvulcania than it would be in spine because of the speed that you're going at. And Transvulcania, that was... I mean, I passed a number of people who had rolled over on their ankles and been pulled out. Well, and you did in training, of course. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's that it's just that fact that you're going fast and you're travelling at high speed and you're genuinely running over rough ground and some steep terrain, whereas typically in a long run, you're, you're, not, you're not nearly running as, as much and you're taking your time. And you've typically got poles, unless one reason for taking poles is to, to catch yourself before you fall but in training terms I found for Transvulcania what I focused on very much in my training I, was, I really focused on my running technique mm. running downhill with my feet pointing absolutely downhill not toe left or right Right. Okay. and by doing that it was much less likely that I would roll my ankle because yeah. my, my toes and my, my feet were laterally aligned to the direction of the hill yeah. It makes it almost impossible to roll roll your ankle unless you hit some sort of weird yeah. undulation left or right. But in terms of training, how I guess the only thing from training perspective for the longer races is building up your resilience. So in Thames Path 100, I got what we think now was some kind of stress fracture potentially of my left foot ultimately yeah. partway through the race, which caused it to balloon up and swell up inside my shoe. I don't know if more and more training would have made me more resilient to that stress yeah. fracture. I don't know. So I've always done strength training as part of my general training. Um, I've used a fitness instructor in Bristol uh, a number of times, um, Jules Taylor, and he's been very good. He's got a trail running background. He's been good at strengthening stability muscles and things like that. I think that's important for whatever distance, isn't it? And I'm doing a fair amount of that and a lot of core strength work and stuff for spine. So maybe that's just general. Well, I think it is important, but I guess the point here is that the more fatigued you get, especially mm. the more mentally fatigued you get, the more you might end up relying on that core strength that you've built in to prevent injury. Yeah. Uh, and the more you practice it, um, yeah. the better it can be. So the one thing, I've torn both medial ligaments in both my feet, not connected with running. And in my rehabilitation, they taught me to stand on one foot... Yeah. and then draw the alphabet in the air with my other foot uh, and then try and do it with my eyes closed, which is really difficult. But the reason for doing that is it promotes better balance. Yeah. And if, you're, if you have better balance and you can train yourself to be better balanced, there's plenty of evidence to show you're less likely to roll your ankles because your body recognises when you're going out of balance and reacts quicker to yes. prevent it happening in the first place. Yeah, and 
that's kind of like a, a proprioception type thing and and it's your body it's having that feedback loop that your body can recognize what's happening quick enough that it can correct it before you go too far Correct. and then but you, then you're beyond the point of being able to capture it and you're going down <laughs> so i don't think it's necessarily different for any mm. of the races i think what we're saying doing that sort of conditioning work and training work mm. is important to prevent injury yeah i guess the point though for injury is that a blister as uh, such as, as an injury you can cope with on a 50 miler get some over the top of it get some comping on it get some t- a little bit of tape on it maybe and run the rest of the race in a little bit of pain and finish you get a bad blister at 50 miles in a 250 mile race chances are you're going to really struggle for the rest of the race unless you get it properly medically treated so it's much that injury has a much greater effect in a longer race yeah i guess it's a that those are fatigue based injuries that are going to increase and only get worse over time um things you're much more likely to have a problem with in a longer race though is problems with your kit yeah and it going wrong and i remember cotswold way century being at the 70 mile checkpoint and stuart turning up with half of his shoe hanging off stuart who's doing spine <laughs> Is this he doing spine? Yeah, yeah. And well, and he did Western States this year. And he did Moab 240 as well. Oh, did he? Yeah. Wow. I he's mean, done. which is interesting because he pulled out of Cotswold Way at 70 miles and yet he's done these amazing races. I know. And really long races, which just shows you that on any one day, it can be different for you. Absolutely. Um, so I guess the point here is, in terms of training or preparation, yeah. if we extend training to preparation, what you can do from a gear perspective to make sure that you're going to get through the race yeah so i've spent a lot of time working through gear on spine and i spent a lot of time doing it for spine fusion and i've had to do almost the same amount of effort to move my thinking on from spine fusion to spine it might be worth just quickly reading out the kit list just so listeners have got an idea of the equipment you're required to take yeah go on then so the kit list for spine uh, i won't go into all the specific details but just give you an overview so backpack compass and maps gps device whistle goggles knife head torch waterproof jacket waterproof trousers hat gloves spare socks neck gaiter base layer top base layer bottoms appropriate layering for mountain stroke fell running appropriate footwear for mountain stroke fell running micro spikes or ice spikes uh, a medical kit involving a number of about 10 different things on it. Sleeping bag down to zero degrees. Roll mat. Shelter, either a tent or a bivy bag. Gas or liquid fuel stove um, with pan, etc. Waterproof matches. Cutlery or spork. Two litres of water carrying capacity. 3,000 calories of food, which must be taken from three of the checkpoints. Mobile phone and the GPS tracker, which is provided. So some of that kit gets bit more extreme and you need to think a lot about how you're actually going to use it and i learned a lot from spine fusion in terms of where things need to be they need to be accessible you don't want to be taking your kit off every five minutes to get access something in your backpack so what i've got i've got a 25 liter sack and all the things in my 25 liter sack nearly everything i'm not expecting to get out that's all my safety equipment that i'm not planning to use unless i need to and then i've got a front pouch which is easily accessible where I've got food, gloves, things like that, where I can easily access it. In addition to that list, I've got like five other things that I'm carrying in addition because I know they're going to make it easier for me. Yep. So I'm thinking a lot about where I put things. I'm going to be wearing gloves. I can't, don't want to be taking my gloves off every two seconds to be able to open a zip. How do you clip it on? Where is it best placed on the body? Where's the weight? So there's just loads of things that you have to think through. And things that aren't on the list, for example, is like waterproof socks. So these are like Gore-Tex socks that you wear that prevent water getting into your foot. And nearly everyone wears waterproof socks. But that pushes your foot size up by half a shoe size. So you need to think again about the footwear you're wearing and things like that. So there's a whole range of things to think through, which is challenging. It's nice. Well, exactly. There's a lot of preparation. So that takes a lot of time. And you've got to try the kit on and work it out and go around probably to loads of different shops and try on kit and work out how it will all mm. fit together. And that all takes away from going running training. It does. From the actual training, the physical training aspect. And it's finding the sweet spot, the best balance that you can 
if you're not a professional athlete, yeah. when you could just do that in your rest time after your runs, mm. the rest of us, we don't have that, that luxury. Yeah. I mean, we maybe get one or two hours to train a day. Are we going to go running training or are we going to do some online research or are we going to go to a shop yeah. and look at this stuff? How do you find that balance? And I think you said before that people focus too much on the running training and these big long events and don't focus on the logistics of it. Yeah. And for things like spine, there's lots of, I've done lots of research by looking at what other people have said and what other people have written. Say Pavel Ploncey, who's won the race three times. Uh, I've listened to podcasts he's been on and, and as he says, it's not a running race. It's a elimination expedition how he describes it yeah i it's just making sure all those things that could make you pull out don't happen to you your running ability is is further down the list of things to worry about yep and it, it you know he wins it because he can keep good speed up and he doesn't stop long at aid stations he doesn't sleep that much um but making sure that none of those things are going to trip you up people have been pulled out for hypothermia people have been pulled out for snow blindness people have been pulled out for wind blindness hence the goggles someone was pulled out last year at the last hut was that seven kilometers from the finish yeah was pulled out there for hypothermia yeah seven kilometers from finishing a 268 mile race you get pulled out yeah yeah and and I gather thought it was the right decision yeah and I think he he thought it was the right decision because he knew he was he'd gone too far yeah so one thing I'm not sure we've talked about specifically is rehearsal, for want mm. of a better uh, term. Yeah. And I guess my point in that is that the more tired you get, the less able you are to think about something. And the more you've rehearsed it, even mentally, the easier you'll find to do it efficiently and quickly. Yeah. So I remember for Spine Fusion, you literally, and I think we thought it was a brilliant idea had a checklist of things you had to do when you got into every aid station so you didn't miss anything because mm. you knew you were going to be tired. Mm. And I think reading that through and going over and over and over it in your head is something that's really worthwhile doing. So for Transalcania, I'd gone through and looked at the times of people who finished in about 12 hours and the times it had taken them to get to each aid station. And I had that absolutely down pattern memorised. Mm. And it stopped me having to think about how I was doing in the race yeah. I needed I literally didn't need to think about it it's, when I got to every A station I knew instantly how many minutes I was faster or slower than the 12 hour time mm. and it just stopped me I didn't have to think about that anymore I could concentrate on other things yes yeah. so I guess this is a bit of how much have you mentally rehearsed the race in your head I've run through it a lot so I think about the different aspects the fact that I've got a list of all the risks that could hit me I've clearly thought about it I think I wear my kit around the house and over the next month I've got what just under a month left to do the race I'm going to be doing more of that and just going out walking just literally just walking around the village almost and I think and and, and just can I access the pockets do I know you know can I put things on and off just the basics and I think there's a lot more of that prep that you need to do for a bigger race than you do for a shorter one yeah especially in in bad weather condition races where you can't just oh I'll just throw my pack off and get it out it, just just taking your pack off could be you know can be a risk people have lost things because they take the pack off they open a zip something blows out and they don't see it again yep and that's a genuine risk yeah and i think it all comes down though to this bit about mental fatigue as well as physical fatigue yeah that the bigger races mental fatigue becomes a much bigger part of that yeah and needs to be something that you think about much more yeah so even things like should i be attaching my gloves to my top Oh, please tell me you've got a bit of string no, that runs but, through the back of your jacket arms and down the other side like as though you're a three-year-old child. Genuinely, that's what people do because they gloves blow away. They don't want to, well, they don't want to drop them <laughs> or they put them down and forget. Yeah. You know, people's races have been ruined. Cause no, absolutely. Somebody's race came to an end last year, was it the year before, because their glasses blew off and they couldn't find them at end of race. You know what I mean? It's yeah. all kinds of things that can happen. So have you got little string to hold your glasses on? <laughs> yeah. No, no, you should do. You need to get one of those things. You no, don't. You're running more to my list. I'm oh sorry. I'm just going to add something more to your list. Oh now. You need one of those straps to hold your glasses. Oh, in, just in case. Yeah. Hey, it's the fun of it, though, isn't it? It is. But it's interesting. I still think, and very easy for me to say, I've not run spine fusion and I've not run the spine race. But there are still areas that I think people probably don't do correct preparation on for spine, and I reckon one of them is sleep training. Mm. So I bet nobody or very few people practice running a fair distance and then trying to go straight to sleep yeah. and then getting up and going, getting up and starting running again 
if it was me doing it, I think what I would try at least and do would be to go up to the Brecon Beacons, run for four hours, and then climb in my sleeping bag and bivy bag and try and sleep. Yeah. Because as soon as you start doing something you're not used to doing, you struggle to do it. I think that's one of the reasons that people struggle to sleep on the spine race is they're trying to sleep in an unusual circumstance. And it's all about making it usual as preparation. I might be wrong. I mean, it's well, easy for me to say right. I've not done it. But maybe it's very difficult to train yourself to do that. I mean, it's the easiest way to train to do that is doing by doing races of this type. And Eon Keith, who's run it a number of times, he and Pavel, they, they do a lot of these type of races. They do a lot of adventure races, you know, multi-day, yeah. multi-discipline events where you have to deal with sleep and as they say, sleep monsters, i.e. hallucinations a lot. Yep. And so I guess they've their training is by doing the races. It's very difficult in a normal working day to just have two hours where you where you train that thing. You're right. You've got to drive yourself to a point where you've reached that level of exhaustion to do it. But I think you're right. It's something that people think about. I know that some of the race top racers, they think about that they, they cut all caffeine out of their system for a month before the race. Yep, and alcohol. And alcohol. Yeah, I've, I've, I don't drink that much, but even I'm dropping that now thinking about the food that you're taking, making sure you've got enough sleep in the weeks to build up to the race. Yep. Sensible things, but it is, it is difficult to balance it with normal life. We're all busy, aren't we? <laughs> we're not becomes, professional athletes. No, but it becomes more important on those races where you're going to push yourself to the very edge of your physical and mental capacity. Mm. I think you don't do that in the shorter races. Yeah. You know, I, I may have pushed myself physically very hard in Transvulcania, but there was no way I reached my, reached my mental capacity where I was breaking down inside my head. It was never yes. going to get like that. Yeah. Whereas I can see how it would do, especially with the sleep deprivation in something like spine. So it's how do you prepare yourself for that level of sleep deprivation, yeah. for example. And I'm not sure you it's, can. It's difficult. No, I'm lucky in a way, I guess I have done quite a lot of sleep deprivation in my life through certain jobs that I've done kind of like shift working kind of things so I don't know it's, it's it's difficult isn't it interestingly one of the things that people often say that people don't train enough to do and I've heard this on multiple other podcasts and interviews is walking training it's it's not your top running speed that's is important it's the speed you can maintain over a long period of time it's your it's your top low end which is more important than your top top end yep and people don't do enough walking because ultimately if you can't walk it doesn't matter how fast you can run if you can't walk fast you're never going to do well in the long races well and we've said this in when we did our training episode you know we mm. said you've got to train what you're going to do yeah and, and which is one of the reasons I said when you're doing a shorter race mm. you need to be able to run the distance before you do yeah. it to get the most of it now you're not going to do that for spine clearly but you're exactly right you need to do you need to practice that walking and walking with poles Nordic walking if, if that's yeah. what people do um, and need to get that practice in because they're going to do more of that than they are running and I've not I know that and I've still not done enough of it and, and you just don't need to do that in the shorter races no no you know I, I did a little bit of walking I walked the uphills in Transcarnia but that's the only bits I walked I walked a few bits in Green Man because I probably wasn't quite as fit as I could have been and I maybe pushed myself a bit hard at the beginning. Yeah. But other than that, most of it was running. Uh, but in Thames Path 100, I specifically trained, as you'll know, yeah. a running-walking um, yeah. mixture because yeah. I realised I couldn't run the whole event. Mm. And it was probably my ability to transition between those two that was the difference between you and me at the beginning of that race. I'd mm. practised it and found it easy to transition and you were struggling on that transition. You said... Yeah at the time yeah so it's interesting Nordic walkers can walk at like five miles an hour you know we didn't do Transvolcania at five miles an hour no <laughs> so I know it's a lot of I, don't think, I don't think they managed to walk no, up no. the hills that quick but, but, yeah. but the point being is you can walk really fast and I've been um, this is before we started podcasting and did Felsman and there was a guy there that was just walking and he was so fast just walking and running I couldn't keep up with him and it wasn't only me. There's a number of us saying, how is he going so fast? We just couldn't understand it. He was almost impossible to keep with. So it just goes to show there's more than one way to skin the cat, as they say. No, absolutely. And that probably plays to something like spine. Yeah. Less impact on your joints, less mm. everything else. But anyway. Something else we've not mentioned quickly is aid stations. Yes. Preparation for those. And I think that's, that's across the board, isn't it? Well, it is. But I think... So, and, and I guess on top of that is um, perhaps we can weave into that preparation for uh, nutrition because mm. it's kind of fitted in with aid stations, yeah, okay. I think, mostly. So my training for nutrition has always been, and you'll know this, 
grab a handful of anything I can and eat it while I'm running and do that with as many different things as I can so that my body's used to taking in whatever is offered to me at an aid station. Mm. And it's what worked for me in Thames Path and it's where it didn't work for you mm-hmm. and you learned from that massively and it, and did the exact opposite in Spine Fusion and ate everything that was put in front of you yeah. because you had to, because you had to take the calories on. In terms of getting in and out of those aid stations we've mentioned before, it's like the fourth discipline in triathlon. It's like the transition. Aid stations are this element that can be planned for and you can train yourself for and have a routine for that will get you in and out quicker. Yeah. And I have a very, very... It's always the same for me. Same fixed routine. As soon as I get into an aid station, the first thing I do is fill my bottles up. Yeah. And while I'm doing that, I'm looking around at what's on the table and I grab some of it, stick it in my mouth, start chewing it, grab another handful of it and walk out the aid station and start walking. That mm-hmm. way I minimise the time that my legs are still so I don't stiffen up. Yeah. Uh, my legs have chance though to loosen up a little bit as I walk out while I'm munching this food before I start running again. And mentally for me it's important to not run out the aid station. Yeah. You know, I'm yeah. tired. I've, I've stopped. I yeah, want some food. Yeah. If I start, I don't want to run. Mentally, I find that difficult. And so walking out the aid stations, I always find easier than running away from them. So this is an interesting point. I think you made on another podcast that on Thames Path 100, we were running 25 minutes, uh, followed by five minutes of walking. Yeah. And then you changed that uh, later on after we separated to like 10 minutes running and five minutes walking, but it yeah. didn't have a massive impact on your pace oh you're going back to the walking thing again yeah yes but 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 the point being that you can walk out of an aid station yes and not lose much time correct yes absolutely and i just but when i did that i just weaved that into right well that's my five minutes walk and then i'll do a 10 minutes run yeah. again i mean and you can and make that work i guess from a aid station preparation though in a shorter race it's just about nutrition yeah uh, or and fluids and hydration it's probably not about anything else don't get me wrong it's probably as good a time as any to stop and sort your feet out. Although me, personally, I'd rather do that before I got to the aid station. Mentally, yeah. I then had another little extra stop. It makes me feel good. Yeah, I've given myself a bit more rest. Okay. If I'm going to stop to uh, urinate, I probably won't do it at an aid station. Mm. I'll probably try and mm. do it somewhere else to give myself a little extra break. It's, that's all mental, clearly. It's, yeah. But the aid station preparation for something like spine has got to be massively different than it is for a shorter race. I think so. There's some commonality. I'm thinking about energy I mean, density, what I can take on. But, but you're I'm 24 hours between aid stations. Yeah. And and some of that, though, is you can't carry it all. Whilst you whilst you insisted to take 3,000 calories from, I think, from the start and then checkpoint three and checkpoint five. Yeah, there's not enough volume in that necessarily in the food you're going to carry. You're not going to carry pasties and all the rest of it because it would probably go out of date by the but you need to stop on <laughs> yeah, route. the race is that long yeah. your pasty will go out of date by the time you finish so there's you know there are places where you have to stop and possibly buy food you're encouraged to and and there is a point where you actually need a certain volume of stuff to stop to keep your stomach busy otherwise you just generally get hungry yeah you know not hungry for energy but hung, hungry hungry and yeah, and at the end of Spine Fusion, I was just like an eating machine. I think everyone was. It's like, I don't care what it is, it's going in my mouth. And you just eat. <laughs> you can eat anything and everything that was put in front of you. But how much mental race preparation, sorry, yes. So how much mental preparation and organisation in your head have you put into thinking about what you'll do in an aid station in terms of a routine? I haven't been doing much, but I've in the last few days started to think about it quite a lot I um, went back and did how, worked out how much time I spent at aid stations in Spine Fusion and it was too long and what have you learned from that I mean not just it's, I mean it's, it's too long that's obvious it's but. drill it's procedure it's having a routine I think in Spine I'll be quicker through the aid stations Spine Fusion's in the summer it, you have to worry about midges as you go up north you have to worry about suntan lotion so there's a certain need where you had to almost like quickly shower and then cover yourself up to protect yourself you don't need to do those two things in the winter but I'm starting to think better and, and there's some other runners who were experienced and I spoke to a couple of them on Spine Fusion that says you've got to get the aid stations nailed down you've got to have a plan it's very easy as we know to lose 10 minutes in an aid station and very difficult to make 10 minutes up on the trail yeah you see what I mean yeah. it, it, you, you've got to you've got to take a certain level of time out just focus on the things you have to and just be very disciplined about it yeah and I guess there's a bit then about working out what you're going to do for those aid stations so 
I know what you did in terms of sleep for spine fusion. You know, interestingly, in my head, and it's clearly all virtual because I've not done it, I would have tried to have gone quicker but slept longer. Mm. I think. That's what yeah. that would have been my that's what I would have tried to have done. Whether I would have done, it's different. Yeah. But I think my approach would have been just trying to sort of sleep at four hours at each aid station, or at least get four hours in an aid station, three hours of sleep. Whether that's possible or not, I don't know. It's the bit yeah, do you go do you I... go quick and rest, quick and rest, or do you try and eke it out slower without the rest? I guess it's all personal choice and isn't it? And and, and also is what's working at the time for you is very difficult to predict. So we've talked a bit about gear failure but I guess the other bit of prep is just in and you've just sort of mentioned all the things you've got to take with you onto spine is how much prep goes into sourcing all of that gear a lot and doing it you don't have an infinite budget for this as well so I think making sure you've bought the right because how, how much is spine online. So the spine race is £850. £850. Now, I, no, don't get me wrong. Small. It's not a small amount of money. I mean, I understand why it costs that much. You know, but it's, The amount of support you get. The amount of support yeah. you've got to get. The amount of also support you might not get, but the contingency that's put in place Absolutely. in terms of in race insurance. If they get, you know, if you, they call that mountain rescue, I presume you wouldn't have to pay for that. That would have been paid for through the race insurance. Yeah, they, they've got a team of safety people. Yeah. There, so there's a lot of it that you'll hopefully never use, yeah. but is there in case you do need to use it. So I'm not yeah. saying it's bad value, but it's still a lot of money. Yes. And by the time you bought your kit, you were going to be well over £1,000. And put it into context, compared to some of the other long races that exist, they they only managed to get about 120 to 150 people race, running this race. It's not oversubscribed. You know, it's, is it it's not? Worth, I, I, no. thought, I thought Spine would be... No, oversubscribed. No, I think I, I, it might it might be closed now, but there's months for there's no there's no. I think not many people fancy taking it on because the conditions are really quite. It's quite a challenging. Race. When it gets back into this bit of preparation and mental concern, yeah, I suspect there are lots and lots and lots of people that would have no problem in doing it yes. when they actually got into doing it. Yeah, but it's that mental bit. Yeah, um, could I? And we've had the benefit of stepping up through the distances and it's experience. You'd never start doing this. Yeah. It's the, it's the training and preparation over multiple races that have led us to this point. I never thought I was ever going to do this race, but... I never thought I'd do an ultra 10 years ago, I'm sure. Yeah. So yeah. there you go. So how much effort have you put into sourcing kit? Probably about 100 hours. <laughs> After Spine Fusion, I thought, right, I'd love to do Spine my biggest concern was clothing and staying warm and I and I couldn't work out how I was going to do it because I do feel the cold more than the average person yep and this is a cold race I mean you feel cold more than I do and I think I feel the cold so yeah. um, so and, I, and I've gone for a single layer system I'm using buffalo basically I used it yep. when I was younger I'd forgotten about it I suddenly then realised well hang on a minute a, a lot of armed forces wear this stuff there's um, mountain rescue teams wear it I remembered the equipment uh, went online went up to the I actually went to the factory in Sheffield spoke to them got a slight modification to equipment a really good small company um, making the stuff for 30 years but that was my way of of thinking right I've I've now minimised that risk and there is a bit there that says it's very easy you said you spent 100 hours doing this it would be very easy to go on and do it in 10 hours I suspect because you could just go onto a forum that other people from yeah. Spine have done and buy all their kit but if you're working on a limited budget there's a balance here on your budget versus your time can you afford to not spend the time and just spend lots of money on kit that people advise or do you spend the time on the internet and go around shops and find something that's possibly slightly cheaper that mm. works? And as an example, you know, you've got this hood that I picked up for you from Decathlon. Yeah. That's not expensive, um, but looks like it's going to provide brilliant warmth head protection. Now, I bet you could spend four times that amount yeah. on a brand name, a big brand name. Yeah. But that effort and time has made it cheaper and possibly even made this race doable for you in a way it wouldn't have been if you'd had to spend so much more money on kit yeah i think so but i also don't necessarily think all the best kit is the most expensive kit as well nope. so for example the goggles i've got to wear glasses i can't wear contact lenses for six days yep. non-stop so i've we've talked about the glasses before so i've got transition lenses but then well, what goggles can i put over the top which is still going to work and i looked at transition over the glass goggles as they're called otg goggles 
um, which have transition lenses. They were quite expensive and I just couldn't get the right kind of pair that would work. In the end, I've got a pair made in Italy, which were 35 quid, which have got changeable fronts. They're held on by magnets. So I can take off a, a day lens, effectively a skiing lens and put on a night lens. And that was really, that was quite relatively inexpensive compared to where you could end up paying hundreds of pounds for a pair of goggles. And it's going to work for me. But also there's a bit in this preparation that says you've got to make sure with all of that kit list and all that stuff you've got to take, you've got to look at shaving off the grams. And you know, in a t- almost in a team skyway, you know, every gram you saved ultimately, when they all add up, will make a significant difference. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking, right, I was going to take a camera with me to film stuff. I was going to take my recorder for the podcasting. You know what? My phone can do all of that. Yeah, <laughs> so I've cut that back. Yeah, um, I don't blame you. I, I've, I'm cutting back on as as far as I can. But fundamentally, my rule number one is I've got to be safe. So I've not skimped on the sleeping bag. My sleeping bag can go down to, ultimately, if it needed to, um, minus 26 and keep you alive. But um, uh, it will be comfortable to minus six, which is a better spec than the minimum. And that's Um, the point where some of these bits of prep overlap. So having that sleeping bag down to that gives you more mental resilience because you won't be so worried and concerned when you're running because you'll know that if it all goes horribly wrong you'll be safe absolutely and so so that safety bit that safety concern and that environmental concern is almost negated by knowing you've got the kit that will keep you safe and it's the same with the buffalo gear buffalo gear single layer system pertex power lining etc if i get soaking wet if i was to fall in a river and get out it would dry and it would keep me warm and it's practically as warm wet as it is dry in fact it's not even waterproof per se no um i can tell you now if that gets full of freezing river water it will be cold until you wring it out and get it back on again it will but but it if if you've got a multi-layered system you know there's lots of different materials not trying to say one way is better than another but people can get cold because they sweat or they've got moisture inside and it can't effectively escape and then that chills to the same level as the outside and then you get hypothermia but there's more than one way to deal with these things and i think this is the point you know when it comes to preparing for these events you've got to put in the time yeah. to work out what's going to work for you yeah for you i think that's exactly the critical thing, you know it? i wouldn't do the buffalo system i know i wouldn't I, I have i've got a buffalo mountain shirt it's brilliant and i've used it plenty of occasions mm. but i'd much rather go for a multiple layer system yeah and i've done it before and it works and and i guess that is that bit again it's preparation isn't it i've yeah. done i've done a multiple layer system yeah, I know it works for me. Yeah, why would I change it? Yeah, I don't have the time to put into necessarily all of the extra research yeah. to change my system. Yeah, I'm normally multi-layer, but I don't think it would work for me in this race. Yeah, you know, playing it through, and it's everyone's different, aren't they? It's how do we? How do you feel the cold? What do you? How do you think you'd be able to regulate yourself? Exactly. It, 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 it's it's race. It's person specific and race specific, and the combination of the two. Yeah, that make you think it through. Yeah, it, all of these things comes down to what you know and what you're able to know and what you're able to that knowledge you're able to generate for yourself Mm. uh, in terms of preparation and once again we've talked about it before it takes away the anxiety it makes the whole race easier to do yeah um footwear so i just want to talk about footwear specifically because as a runner yeah it's got to be you know i think we we neglect our footwear yeah We, we we've all got shoes and we run in them but they're so important. I think we don't put enough time into selection. So you ran in ultra Lone Peak three point five for the for spine fusion. Mm. Uh, you said they were a bit soft underneath. They yeah. But other than that, you thought they were brilliant. I thought they were really good. So Loads what have you room. gone for for spine? I've gone for the one up in terms of so same brand ultra. So they've got the wide toe box. So I don't hopefully won't have any issues with toes um i didn't i work wearing gingy socks underneath which are the toad socks yep. so my toes really didn't have any issues in spine fusion but i needed more cushioning under my feet so i've gone for i've gone for olympus 3.0s okay um which have got an extra kind of five mil of cushioning okay underneath have them. you got a rock plate uh I, I guess actually though when you ran spine fusion it was mm-hmm. in the very dry summer so yes. the ground was hard yeah you're going to, it's not going to be as much of an issue in the winter when the ground is soft. Not as much. There are still various lanes, you know, kind of country lanes sure. and stuff, tractor paths, which have got rocks on, which is still going to be the same. Yeah. 
so I've gone for the higher I've gone for more cushioning because that was my most painful part of spine fusion was my feet just getting bruised it's amazing at the end of it my the skin on my feet really started to thicken up in the last kind of couple of days and when I finished yeah I had loads of calluses all over my feet but and that's something that people do with preparation they use things like um toughen and there's some other bits which are like sprays that are designed for animals as well as humans yeah on the um horses horses and and dogs feet yeah and and you can spray on your feet and a couple uh, a number of people i've heard of uh, a couple of weeks before the race start to spray this onto their feet to make them harder i haven't quite my head worked out if i'm gonna do that or not but it makes total sense to to do you've got to think a lot about the state of your foot when you start yeah and and how are you going to get it into the state that you think is going to work for you yeah are you going to put talc on are you going to pre-tape a bit i don't think many people do pre-tape for this race but but i don't know why because you ended up in you ended up with tape on your feet after the first 50 miles you might as well pre-tape before you start but i don't know necessarily where i'd have problems and i wouldn't have put the tape in the right place if i'd done it last time so on 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 thames path 100 i had a very small blister that i couldn't quite pierce on my heel i put a compede on it but then that ended up becoming a huge blister yeah and the compede was on top of it and i couldn't deal with it so in some ways it unless you're really confident about where to tape it could end up creating a problem rather than solving one yeah but i have learned from the last one i know having spent so much time with the medics looking after my feet and my feet weren't bad on no i know they pretty good good. even so i still spent a few hours with the medics treating them i know how they treat the feet and i've now got exactly the stuff they had so it's a stuff for people for reference it's a stuff called fleecy web um which provides the kind of the padding and kind of just partially sticks to your feet and then you put kt tape over the top and that stuff is the same stuff that i wrapped around my toe in for the second leg of squamish 50 yeah when it when it was causing me issue yeah it was fleecy web yeah and uh, so I know what to use and what will work. So I would never have known that beforehand, but no. I know it works well. So look, if we recap just a little bit on what we've talked about, there's no rocket science in this, really, I don't think. Of course, there's no rocket science, it's trail running. Um, but when it comes to a shorter race, physical activity training is where the majority of your percentage of your prep time is going to go with a small amount of research into how you're going to get your nutrition and your hydration. Yeah. The longer your race goes, the less time you're probably going to spend in doing the physical work proportionately and the more time we think you need to spend in preparation for all the other elements that come into it, like nutrition, like rest, yeah. like taking care of your body, yeah. like clothing, like equipment. Proportionally, those things need to form a greater proportion of your tr- preparation than physical training does necessarily is that yeah, fair i think so and i think it, for me it's almost like 80 20 for the short races like transvolcano 80 percent of the effort is on fitness um whereas when you go to spine it's more like 20 percent and i'm spending 20 on fitness i'm doing uh, strength training is, is is something which kind of for both but it's, different aspect i do more strength training probably for spine um but yeah it's all those other bits navigation equipment mental preparation those take up a lot more time so it's probably 80 20 ish for me i guess the overall point for this is that when you're looking to do a, a race you need to think about what type of preparation you need to do and yeah. it's going to be different for each type of race and that preparation will make or break your race for you and so make sure that you put a proportional amount of time into each element that you need to. Yeah. And being prepared will make your race more enjoyable, ultimately, yeah. because you won't worry about it. You'll be able to think about the beautiful views. Brackets. This is spine, by the way. It's going to be zero Can't visibility with loads of snow. Um, but the experience, which you definitely will be getting. And I think irrespective of the race length, putting effort into the preparation is equally critical and you know what we've said it before maybe equally fun yeah i think i it's, it's it's part of the chat it's why we like it my wife it? said she thinks i enjoy preparing for the races as much as i enjoy actually doing them yeah and i, I think i probably do i i think i i think i do i think definitely as much as i enjoy the races as enjoying preparation it's the challenge of it it's and the fact that all the races are 
different have have normally have their own kind of dynamics yep none of them we've done are really the same they're all subtly different and yeah. we've only we've only touched on a few i mean there's a whole range of other types of races yep you know, if you take western states if you were to get into that you know dealing with the heat which i, which I didn't be... which i didn't oh get into. i'm sorry and i'm really sorry that's all right <laughs> um so you're now committed to doing 100 mile qualifiers yeah well I've kind of decided I said I last year that I, I that was it for me and if I didn't get into Western States that was it but I slowly realised that I really did want to do it yeah uh, and so yeah so I'm now going to do another Centurion race next year to qualify again uh, and we'll see how long it takes for me to get in um, it won't, I don't think that race will be the focus for my summer I need to find something else to do um, but yeah we'll see okay you're thinking it through yeah I think I've got my year planned out but We'll talk about that later. Yeah. Right. Uh, so look, best of luck for Spine. Thank you. Um, next podcast should be about it, I guess. Yeah. So I think you can follow it online if you go to the Spine, Montane Spine website. Yeah, it's called uh, uh, thespinerace.com. And if you go from there, you'll find links to um, all the footage. Um, uh, so there's a live tracker. Uh, and there's also links to the kind of the Facebook page and they put loads of stuff up at the checkpoints and bits they filmed during the race. So you can follow it for a whole week. Um, it's it's fun in itself. I've followed other races that people have done like Moab 240. I followed um, uh, Tour de Jean in Italy. And it's really good with those with those races, long distance races. Everyone normally wears a tracker for safety purposes. Yeah. And therefore you can just follow all the dots and it's quite, it's quite fun over the course of a week. I think it's especially fun if you know someone in the race. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that makes it, yeah, really enjoyable. So we're putting up some links to the Spine Race on our Twitter and Instagram pages at Runners on Trail. And you can email us, runnersontrail at gmail.com. So happy new year to everyone and have a great 2019. Runners on Trail.